Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you just after my 37th birthday here in the mountains of Utah. Very little admin to catch up on. My holiday break was a little longer than I'd intended, but the good news is that I've been writing like crazy on book two of Glass Immortals. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and that your new year is off to a good start. For those of you that missed the Montego Kickstarter, we're working on getting pre-orders up for hardcover and ebook, so check my website periodically. The public release will be at the end of May. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is author R.R. Verdi. Ronnie has written the urban fantasy series Grave Report and Books of Winter, lit RPG Monster Slayer Online, and space western Shepherd of Light. He's probably best known to epic fantasy fans for his new Tales of Tremaine duology, starting with the first binding that came out in August of 2022. Ronnie and I chat about his time working as a mechanic and his love of cars, our authorial anxieties, and our massive lack of skills outside of making up fantasy worlds. We discuss the challenges and foibles of indie publishing, and the way Ronnie jumps between writing multiple genres in the course of a single day. Enjoy my conversation with R.R. Verdi. Hey, man, how's your uh, how's your new year doing? Uh, mine's going pretty well. I've just been killing myself writing uh, like multiple projects at the same time. What about you? Oh, man, the multiple projects at the same time thing. I uh, that's that is rough. I don't I know a, a lot of authors that do it. Um, I try not to. Because I just like occasionally I'll like swerve into a novella, but it'll be something that's in the same world and it'll be just something to get off of my head. So I don't even think of it as a different project. But man, because you've got you write in epic fantasy, urban fantasy, like a bunch of different genres. And so how do you how do you jump between all of that stuff? ADHD? Um, <laughs> really, I, I had to start compartmentalizing my day. But so I sacrificed like everything to be a writer. I knew. Before I even started college, this is what I wanted to do the summer before I started college. And I intentionally set myself up that I don't have a backup plan. So I have to make it with this. And because of that, I've just, as an indie, um, which you already know, I've been surviving as an indie author up until recently. I've had to bounce around and try to read the market and create what I wanted to create within that at the same time. And it's just taught me to compartmentalize my day. So I woke up today like at 5.30, worked out, and then I wrote, uh, I know, yeah, that's the same thing. I'm not a morning person, but it's one of those. I must do it to do it. I'm making a horrible face right here. So um, for the listener. Yeah. God, God did not create those hours. That was the devil. Yeah. And like I wrote, I think 1500 words on my urban fantasy. Cause I owe that contractually for the audiobook publisher I'm partnered with, uh, which is Tantor. And then I prepped for a thriller novel. I'm also writing cause Joshua and I discussed advancing my career to a broader breadth because urban fantasy is really just thrillers and crime detective novels with magic in them. So he was like, why don't you try your hand at one of these? I was like, okay. And then tonight I'm going to be working on um, a novella set in the same world as my fantasy that just came out with Tor. And I'm sort of going to be giving that away for free as a reader market. Like, Hey, check this out. It's a fun story. And then come back and read that in. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, man. You're, yeah. You're jumping around a lot. Like yeah. my, my days are like, like, take care of the pets in the morning and, you know, have some breakfast and, you know, try to make myself answer emails, which I hate doing. Um, and then, uh, and then at some point during the day, I'm going to write for a few hours. See, that's the career I want though. I, I can't even imagine trying to, trying to kind of jump between those kind of projects, especially in a single day. Cause I'll usually like, I'll compartmentalize it by like periods of like 10 days where I'll just be like, okay, I am working on a thing and I don't want my brain to go anywhere else. And uh, yeah, that's, that's tough, man. It helps for me, I think, cause the ADHD and like when you're not, what is it, like neurodivergent or whatever, um, where you think weirdly that if I'm reading a thriller and I'm writing one, something will always pop out of it. I'm like, oh, that's a cool technique or something I could actually use in my fantasy, which is differently paced, but this might help me spice it up. Or that's just a really cool scene that I don't see done in fantasy. Like 
uh, some of my favorite books are weird ones where it's like, oh, this is a legal thriller, but it's a fantasy. And you're like, I never would have thought of that cross. But by reading and writing out of genre, those things sort of blend back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. I, um, I, I find that I uh, find that when it comes to um, trying to stay focused on the writing, like I, I, I've always had this problem where I think of writing like the physical act of writing as being the only work that I do. Yeah. But like when I know, like, you know, in my, my brain, I know that most of the work I do is daydreaming. It's trying to come up with the stuff I'm eventually going to write. And so, so I guess the the act of writing itself is something that I only spend, you know, a couple hours a day on. Um, but I spend so much of my day daydreaming, trying to figure out where things are going, trying to work out problems I might have with the narrative. So when you're, when you're trying to spend a lot of time doing the physical act of writing on lots of different projects, where do you get the time to let it percolate in your brain? Do you need to let it percolate? Yes and no. Uh, I think there's definitely conscious percolation and then there's like accidental because and this is a problem I have too. I don't count consuming media as work, but it really is for us because at the point where we're at, we've internalized and studied so much different story structures, how other authors do things, how we do it, that it all goes back there and filters in. And something I didn't realize I was doing uh, that it's still sitting in my brain from ages ago is one of my favorite shows is Burn Notice. And I love how Michael Weston narrates like, oh, if you take this brake fluid and combine it with like some kind of oxide and a few other things, it's an explosive. And I actually use that style of narration in uh, my new book, The First Binding, when Ari knows something clever and he's relaying it back to the audience in this very conversational first person thing. And it makes him seem that much cooler and cleverer when he's doing this. You're like, oh, that's fascinating. And I didn't realize, but like all those things I'd subconsciously picked up were there. And I think sometimes for me, writing's become now a thing of you have so much in you, the more you consume already, like get out of your own way and get it down. And then plus we get to edit. But uh, between writing sessions, I do take time to read. Like I'm currently rereading uh, Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden Files on my book for Grave Peril. I'm rereading uh, Sun Yi Dean's uh, or reading Sun Yi Dean's The Book Eaters, which just came out last year from Tor. And then I'm rereading a classic. Um, I'm on book two of um, Books of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. Yeah. And I do that in between writing sprints. So I'll write 20 minutes on, 10 minutes reading. And I try to like, I don't do anything else. It's like you must read these 10 minutes. So you're keeping engaged with like either you're reading or you're writing. Yeah. I don't recommend that for people. It's just, it works for me because ADHD makes me want to do something. And I try to go, I'm, I need to do something productive at least. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually, that, that is a level of discipline that I have never been able to actually like grasp. I, uh, cause I find I, like, I don't read anymore. Like I don't read anything. I don't even read anything to blurb anymore. I just like reading yeah. every time I look at a pile of books, I go, Oh, that's work. work. I'm exhausted. I don't want to kind of engage in those creative processes yeah. for someone else's kind of world since I'm doing it so much for my own. Um, which I think is like a, it like feels like a thing I've lost and I'm, I'm hoping to kind of work on getting back to like loving reading and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, but for me, it's always, um, it's always take a couple hours to write and then play video games, like playing a video game, uh, playing a video game, especially cause I don't really play video games that have plots. I like video games that um, where uh, you, uh, you kind of have open worlds that you're exploring and doing stuff. Um, I like builders. I love things that, where I can have like yeah. the creative processes in the back of my brain are just kind of running on silent. Um, and I, sometimes I'll go, Oh man, that, that felt really good to build something in Valheim for a couple hours. And now I have a bunch of new ideas. I'm going to go write. Right. Right. Yeah. And no, that, that's kind of how I uh, recycle the creative stuff going on in my brain. One thing I've liked for that. Well, too, is I, I follow video game world builders or theory divers. So one of my favorite franchise or companies is from software that does Dark Souls and Elden Ring and Sekiro. And then there's a great YouTuber named Vati Vidya. And he's one of those guys who's like, oh, there's an item here and it has this description. And like a thousand hours later, you find something else with a similar description and armor set put somewhere else. And he finds the link of like, oh, because of this lore and this. And you're sitting there going like, that's a cool technique that somebody did. And like, it's telling a story within the story if you bother to pay attention for it. And I'm like, and then that'll give me ideas. And just consuming that in the background is really nice. And the other one I found from, because I do read these things from like, you know, success, um, like athletes and like top one percenters in whatever field. They're like, if you're creative, an hour of intentional boredom is one of the best things you can do. And I've tried to make time for that. And I realized like, if you're a writer, you can't not 
story generate while you're doing that. You, no computer, no nothing. And I'll just sit there, not even a notepad. And 20 minutes in, I'm like, I have to get a notepad. I just came up with something because I'm bored. Yeah. And like, it comes out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, this is great. My, my best creative times are when I'm driving and when I'm in the shower. Um, and oh, we, we got a hot tub a few months ago. The hot tub is amazing for just thinking of things. Cause I'll just lay on my back looking at the stars right. and I'll just, Oh, that's beautiful. And I can't, I can't reach my phone. I don't, I'd never put music on. I just sit there in silence and look at the darkness. And I actually love that. It's like a, it just definitely gets things kind of moving and yeah, it forces your brain to start taking paths that like you're, you're confronting all these different ideas and actually thinking about them rather than distracting yourself with, whatever media is around. Yeah. They've shown, I forgot how one of my friends is huge into this. He works with um, like think tanks that do like human brain studies and how creativity and both creativity and attention span together on a decline because of how much we're bombarded with social media, like the instances of like, if we're, we want stimulation, we can go find creativity from other sources like on TikTok or YouTube, which is why they've also been shrinking to more shorter formats. Like now YouTube does reels, Instagram does reels and TikTok does reels. And it's like peak attention is 45 seconds. Yeah. And I'm like, I, 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 and I am a victim of that too. And I'm trying to get back to like what you just said, like laying in a hot tub somewhere just sounds brilliant because it helps detoxify all of that. And you get back to slower thinking, more creative thinking. And does that mean your hot tub's a creative investment, like a tax deduction? <laughs> I'm Cause it, it's with your work, right? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that a tax guy would uh, have a lot of questions, but I came up with the whole book while sitting in it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to have the conversation with my tax guy about whether it's a medical uh, thing because I have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, uh, yeah, that would do it. Okay. So, so I think that's probably a better bet than the creative deduction. Oh no. Oh no. I've got a puppy that just ran into my office. Oh, sorry. No, isn't that obligatory though, right? It's like every, every zoom call or Zencaster, like the animal has to make an appearance. It's like a law now. Right. You can see my cat kind of, he's just hanging out with me right here. Yeah. He's just taking a nap. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I didn't close my office door all the way, <laughs> but yeah. So I don't know, like the, the kind of the approach that Pete, uh, that everybody takes to their kind of various uh, creative process, you know, like, like the creative process is so it's, it's so romanticized, like yeah, in terms of, you know, when you take your English class in, you know, 11th grade or whatever, it does, it feels so romanticized. And then you like look back and realize that like, Oh no, the, this is like the creative process is orgies and absinthe. Like <laughs> there's not wrong, right? There's like, everybody's going to be a little different. And just sometimes it's meditative. Sometimes, you know, you're Hemingway and you go shoot things and drink a lot, you know, like yeah, whatever gets the work done, right? It's always going to be different depending on who you are, what time period you live in, um, all that kind of stuff. I'm always fascinated by Kings where it's just like he's turned it into a force of habit where he's like, I wake up and I just write and then I have breakfast. And he's like, he writes the same amount every day. He just does it. And over long enough, it's just become like, I guess any athletes thing where you wake up and you do the thing because you've conditioned yourself. That's the thing you do. doesn't even think about it at this point. I think he was in an interview with um, George R. R. Martin where George was complaining, like, how do you do this? Like, you don't have bad days or whatever. You don't think you're crap or any of that. And he's like, no, I wake up and I just do the thing. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess if that works for you, I, um, I, I've, I found that I I really struggle, and this I think has gotten a lot worse since the pandemic. Um, I really struggle with just the million different things that I have to do as a human being, and that's um, you know I've talked about this before on the podcast, and this would be apply to somebody like Stephen King just as much as Brandon Sanderson, where the the true professional jealousy that someone like me has towards somebody like Brandon isn't necessarily the massive success. It's the fact that they have a level of success where they can have other people deal with every aspect of their life. Yes. Yeah. Isn't creative. Like, yes, they just, you know, like, and, but Brandon has to do lots of business stuff. He has to do meetings and things, but for the most part, he's able to say, yeah. you handle this, you handle this, you handle this. Yeah. I'm not even making my own breakfast. I don't do that kind of thing. Yes. I go right. And that's what I do for my entire life. And I yes. kind of love that concept. It's so cool. It's the dream, right? It's because you've autonomized every other aspect of your life so you can write even more and better and dedicate. It's like my life is now writing. If my life could be 12 hours every day of video games and writing, that's exactly what it would be. I would. It would just be a cycle of me 
write a bit, play a video game to detox, write a bit, play a video game to detox. And that's what it would be for just eternity. I would love that. Oh, God, that's that's awesome. <laughs> I, I can't yeah, imagine anything better than that. Maybe just I'm a car guy, so I'd love time to just fiddle on my car and write because that's you said that's one of the best places you get ideas. And it's the same with me and then or working on a car, not for other people's cars, but like my own quietly with no noise and just just going through a mechanical process, solving something. I realize my brain's still like thinking somewhere else in the background. It's the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, working with your hands on something where you don't necessarily need your brain. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's kind of force of habit and yeah. all that stuff. Like that's the best time to have cool ideas. Like one of my friends doesn't write and I've been pushing him to because he comes up with amazing ideas. He's a huge reader. He does that when gardening. It's the exact same thing. He's like working with his hands and he sit there and dig and I'll get a phone call later. He's like, so yeah, I was digging and planting like tomatoes or whatever he plants. And it's like, I had this great idea. And he'll sit there and regale me with a story idea. I'm like, I'd buy that book. It's like, yeah, I don't want to write. Well, you can't just tease me like that. But I mean, he can. He's been doing this for 15 years at this point now to me. Oh, and I find that stuff like gardening, working with your hands in general, like I've found that there is a benefit, a creative benefit to it that's not even direct, that it's it's kind of a thing where like I can go out and work in my yard for three hours and maybe in those three hours, I don't think about my work at all. But that's actually a totally different benefit because your brain's kind of like it's just it's flushed all of the anxieties over whatever plot line you're working on, all of those things. And you're kind of able to look at it with new eyes. And I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. For me, that's that's going to the gym. I actually can't think of stuff when I'm working in the gym. I just can't come up with store ideas. It doesn't work that way. But going all in on my lifts, I just don't think about anything else. It's great. Like I, it's like right. I've never been a writer at all when I'm in the gym. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a real benefit to uh, decoupling from that creative brain, which is because uh, it, it's going all the time. Yeah. It, for for most writers, anyways, I uh, I think that you're just constantly thinking about the project you're working on, the project you want to be working on, all that stuff. And so if you can decouple even just for a few hours, it really can uh, can cause some really great things to kind of happen with what you're working on. Yeah, it almost feels like by overthinking, which I mean, most of us are all guilty of doing in this field, like you're already tangling up your brain and that gives it a chance to detangle. So whatever you do, get back to whenever, there's a little bit more grease on the wheels to go smoother. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Now, so you you mentioned you have worked as a mechanic, right? Yeah. You, and you you tinker with your own stuff. Like, tell me a little bit about like what like did did you work for many years? Was this kind of like a hobby? Uh, so, so sort of like a lot of guys in my neighborhood. So I live particularly in a pop-up neighborhood that was like a, I don't know if the word veteran community is a real thing, but the, the houses in the neighborhood I, I live in were all built during the Korean war for like veterans back then. Uh-huh. And when my parents moved here and moved in the neighborhood, it was still a lot of those old lingering guys there. So there are a lot of muscle cars in my neighborhood, like old, you know, 442 Cutlasses, uh, GTOs, Barracudas or anything Plymouth ever made. I don't. I actually never saw a classic Mustang here. Interestingly enough, because it's like one of those popular cars. But there was a lot more GM uh, muscle cars here. So you know, you'd see them. You see some guy in his sixties and seventies sometimes having a hard time, you know, cleaning his um, lawn or uh, clearing out during winter. And I'd go help as a teenager. And he'd be like, "Hey!" And you know, when he's working on his car in summer, it's like, "You want to come over and come look at the cool car?" And it's like, "Oh, awesome!" And then you start it up and you hear it like backfiring. And it's those old carbureted cars that are all V8s, just hearing them rumble. It's like, "Wow!" And then. My dad was a cab driver, so there, there's like the other side of this where I'm always helping him with his car, but it's the terrifying work with your dad thing was like, hand me the thing. It's like, the wrench? He's like, no, the, the, the pliers. And you're like, there's five different kinds, and at this point, I'm interested in the internet exists, so I learn all the names of pliers. I'm like, you want the needle nose, the vice grip? Like, which one? The monkey wrench? Like, what do you want? He's like, oh, the one that goes like this. And I'm like, <laughs> so like, there's a trauma from it. But I thought because I'd grown up with it working on my own cars that I would eventually become that. Like, when I was 16... One of my earliest high school cars was a 97 Trans Am that we supercharged. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm good with this car thing. I build cool cars. Like, I should go do this. And then when college started, 
It's like, I hate everything. I don't want to be an IT guy or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, which is legal if you're South Asian. Like, you have to be one. <laughs> um, and I thought I'd go get a blue-collar trade. That way I could do that, make some money, and so write. And I went to be a mechanic, and I loved the process. I didn't like the bureaucracy, which sounds weird. Yeah. But a lot of mechanic shops have this thing where, you know, there's always older guys there. And you build friendships with the service writers, the guys who write the tickets of, hey, this car needs this. And the way it's supposed to go is if you have an open uh, slot, you're capable of doing the work, you pull the car into your bay and you do it. The way it really worked is, oh, that's an expensive engine job. And the old guy here would get paid a lot. And he's my buddy. So uh, you can't do it even if you're free. Go do an oil change. It's like, but you lose money doing oil changes, really. That's how they get you into the shop. It's like, can I do the expensive job and make money because I'm certified to do it? It's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't really like meritocracy. It would suck. Um, I worked at Toyota for a little while where I was like, actually making really good money because I worked there when the, the unintended acceleration recalls were happening where people were like, oh, yeah, my Prius just started going to 80 on the highway. And it was computer based. A lot of the issues and a lot of the, the older techs didn't know how to do it. So I came up with a shim of how to cut the brake pedal really fast and then how to also reflash the computer while you're doing it. And it was warranty work, meaning it paid three hours no matter what. Yeah. So if I did it like in 15 minutes, I'd get three hours worth of pay. Huh. So I was doing like dozens of them in that one three hours. And I was like, cool, you made a thousand dollars today. And I'm like, hey, I'm good with this this mechanic thing. I really want to do it now. And then the recall thing was done. Yeah. And it went back to you're back on oil changes. And I'm like, I don't like being a mechanic anymore. So that's that's actually kind of crazy. I never I, I never knew that kind of the kind of uh, the mechanisms behind like a, an actual like mechanic bay is is more in that style. Like that's almost like um that's almost like a uh, like how they like how they do haircuts. You know, you go to a salon and they, they rent the spot to cut your hair. Yes. Yes. That's exactly how it is. Yeah. And they only get paid what you've paid and tipped them. And then they have to pay the yeah. company. I didn't realize that was like that. For so mechanics. mechanics work on flat rate. So like I wouldn't have to rent the bay, but I'm not going to use a specific dealership. Let's say I'm at one. Uh, the bay is part of it. And you get your basic, very hourly, like under minimum wage thing. And oil change would be like two tenths of an hour or something. Yeah. So you'd make just a little bit over minimum wage and you get paid that regardless how long it takes you. So it pays like it should take 15 minutes worth of work out of an hour. That's not how long it ever takes. You need to go get the oil filter from the parts department. And there's always a line. Other people need parts. You got to go get the bulk filter. You got to go find the car in the lot. It's not like they tell you where it is. Bring it in. It might be scalding hot. So like you got to be careful because oil gets up to really hot temperatures. You don't want to burn yourself. Yeah. And then they usually work in, oh yeah, give them a free tire rotation and something else, which takes time. But the real money comes in at, let's say you can do an engine job and they'll pay eight hours, but you've got the right tools. You know how to do it. You could do it in three to four if you just focus and do it. So you'll get paid eight hours worth of work at four hours worth of time. Right. And that's how long time mechanics really start making their money. They get the expensive tools. They know all the shortcuts and tricks. They know how to optimize that flow for that job because they've done it so much. That's crazy. I, I had no idea that that was kind of the style that mechanics work through. That's um that, that explains a bit about the, the, the way you kind of have to deal with mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun for anyone except for the dealership. Like it does suck for customers. Um, and it also sucks for mechanics and the people who make the most money. Sometimes it seems are the service writers and obviously the people at the top of the dealership. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the service writer gets a cut. If he sells you like, Oh, you need brakes and all this. And a lot of times you really do, but if he gets you to do it, he's getting that part commission too, for upselling you those services. Yeah. The mechanics getting the labor for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I, I I bought four or five years ago. I bought my first new car ever. I got a, a Toyota Highlander. Oh, it's a great cars. Which I, I, I mean, I'm still driving. I like, I don't drive cause I write. So I've only got, I've got this great Toyota, Toyota Highlander for with only like 30,000 miles on it. Um, <laughs> but like something it was my first experience going through the whole new car rigmarole at a dealership where, you know, if you want to, if you want an oil change, you've got to bring it back to that dealership. And like, they do all that stuff. What a weird, like, and it took like an entire day. I mean, granted, I was spending a lot of money, but I also knew exactly what I wanted. It felt like, oh, this should take me an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's such a weird process. Like that, the whole the whole car industry is so bizarre. Yeah. It gets better and worse when you get to independent shops. Like gas stations aren't run like that. But then again, not everyone feels comfortable going to one. There it is. The faster we get you in and out, that better for everybody. Yeah. Especially because they make really good money on safety and uh, emissions inspections if your state does emissions. Because not everyone does. But most people go get both of them banged out. And that pays... Um, flat based off like the price of your state so in virginia i think it was like 28 or 30 dollars the emissions to the station is half of that so you'll get 15 no matter what car you do and then safety is also half i think it's 16 or 
18 and you get $8 or nine at the station. And the inspector usually gets a salary, yeah. which is really nice. And you can just make a living being an inspection um, inspector in a really popular state, like where I live right by DC, where it's like 80 to 90,000 on salary. And all you do is safety inspections and emissions. It's a lot easier. You're checking brakes, tires, air, exhaust. Um, and then you, most cars now are so modern that you just plug in uh, what's called an OBD2 monitor yeah. and the computer does the emissions test for you, unless it's a way older car that counts as an antique now. We have to get it on a dyno and roll it. But newer cars, it's plug and play for emissions. Oh, you barely have to get dirty if you just want to be an emission inspector. That's uh, that's really interesting. I, I actually find I, I, I love I love learning about how other industries work. Um, and this is actually super unique for this podcast because we normally authors tend uh, tend to come from um like a lot of white collar backgrounds if they've had a career previously yeah, yeah um you know something that you can write you know when you're on break or or when you're oh i wrote as a mechanic i i just, did you can i admit that i don't know because technically you're not paid when you're not doing yeah. um stuff right if you're not working on a car so i had a really crappy dell venue tablet when they were first coming out but i had the keyboard and i installed microsoft word on it and i would sit there in a bay and i just type like oh i can get 200 words out right now or it's lunchtime i'll eat and i'll write or if I'm waiting for like a really long job, like at a transmission flush once where you hook it all up and the machine does the flush for you and you already fill in like how much new fluid you want in. And I would sit there and it's like, oh, it's going to take 30 minutes. I would sit there and just type for those 30 minutes. I wouldn't do anything else. And it added up. It wasn't great, but you know, you'd come home at midnight. Uh, and I think I was working at Toyota at this time and smelling of oil and I'd shower and I'd stay up for another hour and bang out the rest. Of, like I have to do 2000 words a day and I got 1000 done at work. I'll do 1000 right now in an hour. And then I go to bed at one. Yeah. And then next day, same exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah, that's that's uh that's that's a little struggle. I think I would I think it would bother me trying to do physical work and then jump between that and writing. I didn't have a choice. I just like I said, I knew I wanted to be a writer at eighteen and everything else was just like how do I survive until I make this a living and that's get that seems like it's getting harder these days the more I look at Twitter and, and publishing news, but whatever. Right, right. Well, and with publishing news and social media and stuff like that, you never know what's like, what's real, what is consistent, what is uh, that too, what is people kind of throwing things out and projecting and like a realization that I think most of us end up having is that everyone is constantly lying online. <laughs> and it's not, it's like white lies. It's like a little tiny thing where you're, you're, you're projecting your, you're projecting an image of yourself to the internet and you know, it's the Instagram effect, right? Oh yeah. 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 Where you're presenting an image of yourself that you want other people to perceive and it's everyone does it. And sometimes it's very conscious and sometimes it's just completely subconscious. Right. Right. But it's, that's just how social media works. I, uh, about a month ago, I decided, you know what? I'm going to take all social media off the front page of my phone. That's smart. I didn't delete any of the apps. I just took it all off front page. And honestly, I barely use it anymore. Like, like you could go on my, my Twitter and see that I've tweeted like, like six times in the last couple of weeks. Like, I just don't, I don't think about it because it's not on the front page of my phone each time I open it. And I think it's way better for my mental health. I've noticed something like that too. And a friend recommended it to me. He explained it. And again, he's super smart, like genius level IQ. I don't understand all of the science behind it, but it also has to do with like the color saturation of phones and how it stimulates dopamine. And he recommended me installing a gray filter app where my phone's always just black and white. I've noticed that makes me want to use it a lot less. Yeah. It's for anything. I just don't like looking at it now. Unless it's like an email or something and I've got prioritized. Like if Joshua, uh, my agent, dings me, I'm like, okay, I should probably look at that. And that's about it. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, I found that I use, like four or five months ago, I had a heart thing where I was in the hospital for four days and had some surgery. And then I had you know, two weeks of recovery. And I found that when I'm lying on my back, just in the guest room, like bored out of my skull and I can't really sit up enough to type. I, uh, I just installed a, a writing app on my phone and I, I, I find that I use that way more now. And I don't necessarily do, I don't necessarily do narrative with it, but I write down lots of ideas or snippets of a conversation that I want two characters to have. And, uh, and then later at some point, I'll end up back at my computer and I'll just, I'll use it as little seeds for a scene right? and, and let it grow for when I'm actually seriously typing. That's a great idea. I actually, I'm going to do that. I'm going to install like some writing app on my phone for that. Which one do you use? Um, I mean, I could just look, I don't actually remember. Uh, I'm using pure writer right now. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's fine. It's got a black, it's a white type on black background. Um, and it, uh, it's a little weird in terms of how it's organized, but I've kind of gotten used to it and I like it. But that would be better for me because again, with ADHD, I know my impulse, even late at night, if I happen to pick up my phone for whatever reason, 
I'll be more inclined to finally check like my Discord messages or something. But if I have that app installed, that's like, or I could just open this app and just screw around for 10 minutes. Like I'm just gonna be awake for 10 minutes. That's all you do. And I will probably write something last minute that I will always tell myself usually, oh, you'll remember it in the morning and I never do. Oh man, oh. Now I'll actually remember. No, that is that has been a problem of mine forever. And and really I like in the, the app that I've been using, I just, I have, I now have a folder that is ideas to revisit later. And and I've written down six or seven things that could all be their own novels now. And and I'm like, oh, this is actually, if I add this up, then as soon as I'm finished with this new series that I'm working on, you know, it's going to be four, four years from now or whatever. Um, I will actually have a backlog of ideas that I can revisit, which I, I've never really done before. I've never, never been one of those people that religiously writes down notebooks and stuff like that. And, uh, and I'm trying to be better about it. I do, but I feel like it makes me hard at times to deal with at conventions. Like one, first of all, I'm a massive extrovert. So when I'm on, I'm... It's not usual in this industry to have so many experts, especially at small conventions like at World Fantasy Con, where everyone's really quiet. And it's New Orleans. I love the place. And I'm a big extrovert. And I'm like, oh, people get scared. Like the loud talking, happy guy. And I'm like, oh, so I had to find something to do. And I would, I don't know if I'm allowed to admit this, but like the, the Hilton Hotel or the Hyatt, whichever one has had these free little, you know, like note cards to do business meetings on. And I took a pen and every day I was taking like five or six of those note cards and I'd have them all filled up by the end of the day. I'd see like a beautiful street and I was like, oh, it's a cool sounding name. And I come up with like a storyline and I came up with like a grim, dark military fantasy inspired by like the French Foreign Legion because we're in New Orleans and like there's French history there. And I was writing it all out. And people are like, what are you doing? Like you're just scribbling all day and all these things. You've got like 30 and I still have them. I brought back 30 of those packet things that were probably supposed to be for a conference meeting, but they were there. Yeah. And I was like, this is this tones my extrovert down for a while. I'll quietly just go scribble ideas at this con because people can only take so long talking to an extrovert when they're an introvert. I, uh, dealing with conventions. Cause I know you've done a ton of conventions. Like we've met several times at conventions. Yes. Um, uh, dealing with conventions is one of those weird things as an author, you, you know, part of, and part of it is because so many authors are introverts Authors are a kind of celebrity, but not like big enough celebrities to actually not be treated yeah. in any special way. Uh, you know, it's like it's a very weird atmosphere to be in um, that you can't really quite describe to people that haven't experienced it because you're a little bit famous. You might have people come up to you expecting you to be on or maybe you'll float through three days with no one talking to you. You know, like it's, it's very strange, but I, I've definitely, I definitely started uh, right before the pandemic. I was finally starting to kind of codify the way that I treat conventions. And um, because I, I can turn on the extrovert thing for a couple of hours, very quite successfully. Yeah. Um, but like, there's a point at which I, that just exhausts me. And so like, I started realizing, okay, I never share rooms at hotels at conventions anymore because I, I need to be able to go to a place like, it sounds kind of prima donna-ish. No, no, it's not. I get it. I, I completely get it. But, like, I need to go to some place that's totally silent. No one else's luggage is lying around. Like, I can just retreat for an hour and kind of recharge and then go back out. And, like, that kind of thing. Like, it's it's like one of the things I figured out a few years ago was, you know, like, I, I, I can get pretty bad social anxiety. But I figured out that if I have house guests over, the way I deal with my social anxiety is to do all the cleaning up myself. If if we're all chatting, we just had dinner, I go do dishes and I kind of half participate in the after dinner conversation. But like it takes my anxiety and just lowers it all down. So I've got something I'm doing my hands with uh, and I'm not being rude by staring at my phone to deal with my social anxiety. Right. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, and it, but you kind of, as an author, when you start doing those kind of things, you do, you have to kind of have these little things that, that you do to, to deal with the fact that you have to put on a public face for what is 99% a very private, uh, career. Yeah. And that's been the weird dichotomy for me to deal with. Cause as an extrovert, I've chosen an extremely introverted career path and lifestyle because I like people and going out, but I actually don't do that much in my day-to-day -day life. Like I actually really don't leave except when I go to conventions these days or travel. Um, and again, that traveling is usually for conventions. So I have this weird rebound where at Dragon Con or something, which a lot of people I'm having the time of my life for the four or five days, it's an absolute blitz. I wake up like at 6 a.m. and I don't go to bed till 2 a.m. the next day. And I'm wandering outside, like getting cake from the Metro Diner and coming back and there's authors talking and we're networking and workshopping and like a random fan will be there for somebody. It's just great. And then the, net, the final day you go home and it's such a weird culture shock for me that 
uh, with my depression, I actually extremely sink. Yeah. All the extroversion has gone. And it's a complete, now you need to get back to work. And I have a weird, adjust back to being an introverted career guy when I'm not an introverted career guy thing. Oh yeah, for sure. That's like, I, I find that I either I'm super energized and I slink right back into writing or I just crash for like a week. Yeah. And I don't, when I am in a, when I'm at a convention, I don't know which of those is going to happen afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I always feel bad for my wife because I'll get home after being gone for three or four days and she'll be like, I haven't seen you in three or four days. Let's go out to dinner. Let's have a conversation. And I'm like, don't talk to me. I don't <laughs> like, <laughs> I try to be a little bit, you know, better about that. Um, but like in my brain, I'm going, I don't want to communicate with another human for like five days like like screw the emails like screw even seeing another person's face just lock me away for a little bit um and that always gets under her skin yeah i i do i guess my coping variation of that which is like i'll blow up everybody's dms who i was just talking with and they're like we just saw you at dragon con i'm like yeah i know but i want to talk to somebody right now and like readjust to becoming a social hermit so like help me wean back in and they're like, oh, okay. See, that's one of those things, though, that that, that kind of thing is actually has a pretty uh, solid benefit. Like for people that aren't introverts, and I struggle with this myself because like my dad was in business for a lot of my life, like kind of big business. And when I first started doing conventions, he was very much like, look, you write down everyone's names, memorize those names, memorize who they are, send follow up emails as soon as you get home. Like this is a very business oriented sort of networking tool. Um, most authors aren't going to do that because yeah. they're like, we've been talking about an introvert that just had to be extroverted and now they don't want to hear from anyone, but like, it's actually a really smart thing to do. Oh yeah. It's actually, I mean, I don't know if it's relevant, but it ties into how I actually got my tour deal. Um, so I actually bumped into my editor at a convention and I didn't know that's who he was. I was meeting with a different editor who works with like battle tech and IP work. And he just invited him along. We're talking, hitting it off. And he's like this giant wheel of time nerd. And we grew up with the same fantasies. And this goes great. And then at the end of it, he's like, hey, um, he's a really cool guy. I work at Tor. Like, hit me up sometime. Talk about what you've got. And I immediately followed back up. Like, hey, it was actually great meeting with you just geeking out. Like, I didn't immediately submit anything to him. I just was like glad that I was like, you, you like all the weird fantasies I do. Because there are some obscure ones that happened in the mid-2000s that not a lot of people talk about anymore. And they're out of print. And like, we hit off on one, which was done by this Russian author, um, Alexei Piov. I think it was like the Chronicles of Siala with like the first book is just Shadow Prowler. And he's like, oh, nobody really read that. And it's like, I, I love that series. And then I followed up with him. We just geeked out for a while. And then a month later, he's like, you gotta ever send me that fantasy book you told me about? I was like, oh yeah, I guess I could do that. I'm writing it for like indie stuff and um, Audible wants it. And he's like, yeah, well, let's talk about that later. Just send me the book. I was like, okay. Yeah. And a month later, he's like, you haven't sold it to Audible, right? And I was like, no. He's like, cool, because Tor wants the series. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, and he's like, we'll call you back in December. I got to finish some stuff. He's like, who's your agent? And I'm like, I don't have one. And he said, go pick one. Right. But it was just because I bothered to follow up and like just talk to him like a, a person. Yeah. And it's it's such a weird thing because we're caught between the way the business world works in much of, well, let's just say the US. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in terms of making connections and following up and all that stuff and trying to do this balance of like not being annoying, right? Not, not being the person that right. they talk about like when they're, you know, bitching to everyone else, uh, you know, their other agent friends. But like the fact is, is that most people in publishing are very normal people that yeah. have a very lax job. Like... <laughs> That sounds insulting, but it's not like it's the creative kind of job market is one that has a lot of wiggle room in it in terms of, yeah, you know, the very forgiving about deadlines and things like that, as long as they know you're doing the work. Yeah, yeah. And so so you're, you're kind of in this space with kind of normal people just trying to find something to geek out about. Yeah. And of course, they're always thinking, I hope this is a bestseller. Right. But in in terms of an editor and agent, they want to if they already know they like you, if they hung out with you for a couple of hours, they're, they're going to look at your work in a much, uh, much more forgiving light. And they'll say, yeah, oh, this person, they seem really fun. They seem like they could be fun to work with. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, that's something that I, that's a relationship that I built with my agent and my editor was I'm pretty easy to work with. And right. I, I don't need a lot of edits, but when I do, I will rewrite an entire book if I have to without complaining about it. Right. Um, 
and they want they want people like that. Right, right. It's a it's a it's a weird industry. We were talking a bit. We won't get into the the specifics. We were um we we were bemoaning before recording started, but we were talking about a bit about this before uh, we started recording. And publishing is such a strange industry. It's yeah. It's just got it's it's stuck in these kind of two worlds of being a creative industry, but also a, a proper business that is most publishing houses are owned by some mega conglomerate in new york or germany or england or wherever yeah so it's it's a weird place to be in yeah there's there's definitely some disconnects and i've had to adjust to that especially coming from indie where it's i don't i don't know if blunt's the right word but it's very direct like when you're dealing with freelancers because there's no job security for them either everyone has like hey these are my schedules but i will get your cover done at this time or i'll have your edits to you at this time or i will help you market at this time because this is and and it's always at that time but I, I guess traditionally, like you said, they have the wiggle room and it makes sense because they have such a large influx of projects they're dealing with. Like it's m- to a much higher scale. But just adjusting to that was weird for me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I don't know if this has been your kind of experience with indie publishing, but with my like novellas that I've self-published when I first started kind of doing the process, I definitely found that a lot of the freelancers are just as uh, flaky or even worse than like the actual publishing business, which can be very frustrating. But when you find someone that is really on top of their game, like I, like I've got an artist who's done, I think most of my novella, art he's awesome he doesn't charge an arm and a leg and he his turnaround time tends to be like a week or two like like there's once you find someone you're just like well i guess i'm using them forever oh absolutely and that's what i loved about the indie community that i built with friends because we all recommend people that like oh this guy's had this fantasy author for like eight books now like they must be pretty good and i'd go do you mind if i like get their name and he's like oh yeah it's this person he's really great and i'll save you more trouble i'll tell you what dates i've already got on books so you know what you might look for i'm like oh that's perfect and i built up my own stable for that uh in fact it's one of my indie artists who i did a different series with who's actually my artist now on tales of tremaine with tor i had him do some concept art when i thought i was going to indie publish and go with uh audible with this and when chris at uh, chris morgan at tor bought the series and Golanks in the uk i showed them like well here's some early concept images of just what i was thinking you know i figured they weren't even gonna care but we had cover approval worked into it. And I got back two emails saying, these are utterly gorgeous. Who's the artist? We'd like to work with them and just redraft your cover using these concepts. I was like, oh, that's perfect. And I just reached out to Felipe. I'm like, do you want to come work for tour and go lengths? And he was like, hell yeah. And he just, and essentially the coolest thing is he remade the cover that I originally liked and wanted the most anyways for them. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is perfect. I'm like, he just redid the same cover, but better. Okay, I'll take it. I'm happy. <laughs> Right. I mean, there's always those moments as an author where when when you can manage to get your your publisher to pay for the thing that you really wanted but couldn't afford. Yes. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. That's always that's always a really nice place to be at. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad they just locked them down for the rest of the series because like now I'm I don't know if my editor will listen to this, but I'm secretly always poking Felipe and seating him like, so here's book two. Here's the idea. Uh, You mind? Let's let's work on some mock-ups before we get to Tor's part of making book two's cover. And then I'll show them the mock-ups, which I've already done for book two now. And Tor's like, oh, these are great. And I'm like, cool. So we're just secretly directing my cover before it gets to that point with them. (laughs) 
I I definitely have a um for I I have a relationship with my interior artist for um the Glass and Morals series where we've basically I, I I've you know I've I've had enough success that I can afford to go ahead and just pay for the interior art myself so that I own it right and then I can say to Tor well here's the interior art and because. I kind of vetted everything with them beforehand. I know it's all professional grade. I know it's the type of stuff they like and they want. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't hurt that my interior artist works for Brandon Sanderson in house. Um, so I like it's once you've kind of built up these relationships and you get a feel for what people in the business will tolerate. You can you can just kind of say, "Hey, I have this guy already." Would you like him? Would would you like to use the stuff I've commissioned? Would you like to commission new stuff? You know, you can go through that process. Right. Honestly, when when you make everyone else's job easier, they're very happy. I want to get to that point so bad. I, I originally did throw that theory out there like, hey, I can help try to pay for interior art with this book and everything. But I understand their concerns because like, I was first time debut author with them. It's already a really big book. Um, and they already hired my cover artist. But I was like, interior art guys like which is one at the end of each chapter and i'll help spring for it and they were like nah we can't right now and i get it but one day i'd like to get to that point well yeah i mean for me it's just some maps and you can get away with maps in an epic yeah game. maps i did um but uh yeah i mean when it comes to like serious interior art gosh that would be fun to have right chapter art like unique chapter art for every chapter that kind of thing but um I don't know how much they even do that anymore. I don't know how much more expensive it makes the book to print. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I, I don't know. But I, we were talking about this earlier, too. But with the, the advent, like the Kickstarter blow up, it shows that at least readers want that. They will invest in it because I was shocked because America doesn't have, you know, we don't have too much of the, the custom book scene, at least in bookstores. But then I remember when I was debuting with this last year, there were, what is it? Um, Goldsboro and then the Broken Binding, especially do limited edition runs. And I was like, oh, so flattering and sweet for them to do one for me. I didn't anticipate the response to it. And I was like, wow, there really is a massive collectors, like buyer group out there for readers who want the sprayed edges. They want alternative art, interior art, cover art. And I mean, Brandon Sanderson's success has shown that. So I kind of thought publishers might be eking more that way because people are clearly willing to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I um, it was so funny because Broken Binding, like I, I chatted with him online. Um, we had a, a Zoom meeting, like when he first started, <laughs> and when he was first launching and starting to get everything going. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and we were trying to figure out how I could get him signed copies in the UK. And I, re- I remember, I, I ended up sending him like twenty of each of my novella, the self-published ones that mm-hmm. only come from me. They don't, I don't have a like a. I don't have a uh, an outlet anywhere that I other than my own website. And so I sent him like 20 of each and then I didn't really hear back from him. Um, and it's so funny because I got an email from him just a few days ago and he's like, hey, man, I'm so sorry that I dropped off the grid. It, I've had to hire like seven people in the last year. It, my company is blown up. Also, I need to order a whole bunch of all of your self-published stuff like it's kind of crazy. And and the thing is, is that my mindset is so US based yeah. that the, the, the fact that pr- I, I'm guessing 90% of broken binding business is in the UK or, or maybe continental Europe. The fact that he's ordering that much of my self-published stuff and, and is interested in having me be involved over there at all. That's so cool because in the US, like even though that's most of my sales, you get a lot of apathy from from American readers in terms of they, they want the book, they want to read it, it's great, but they don't care as much about, you know, the, the like special editions and right. things like that. And I, I love seeing that though, because I've, I've been hearing the theory from other authors and Discord groups that the UK has a different kind of reader buying collector mentorship and just, or it, it's just fascinating because there's another one I forgot, Illumicrate, which is massive. Um, I had a friend who her debut book was also adapted by them. And I think it was 20,000 sales just through Illumicrate for their edition. And it's like, that's a lot of sales wherever you are. Like, that's how big just that one subscription model yeah. was. And then she got like broken binding editions. And I think Goldsboro. And I'm like, that's another like couple thousand right there. And it's just, you wouldn't think to see that here. Like, I think the best you might get in the US is like, does Barnes & Noble do their own editions of like new authors or is it only classics? I, I think it's only classics, but I Wow, okay, never mind. I don't I don't really pay attention anymore. So Yeah, right. And it's just but those are thousands and thousands of sales that clearly exist for a market that people want. And it's 
don't know. We might maybe we'll start seeing publishers do that here for some authors. I I, I think it'd be worth it. I mean, I would love it if it was if it was a thing. Like, because I remember when I first entered the uh, the industry at in 2013, I, I remember getting like an offer from I don't remember who it was. It was one of the collectors' editions places um, that existed around that time. I don't even know if they still exist. But it was like, a, and my agent was explaining to me all of the um, the way that that works with my contract. And it was like only like a thousand copies or something like that. Right. But I also remember my agent at the time basically said, look, these are all going away. Like this might be the only one of these offers you ever get because we're not seeing them nearly as much as we did 10 years ago. Um, but then, but now it seems like those are actually rebounding. And I don't know if that is part of the pandemic uh, and lots more people reading because because we've seen print sales uh, in fiction have started actually going back up. Yeah, yeah. The last five years, which is crazy because, you know, all the doom and gloom of print, you know, print is dead. Nobody wants to read physical books anymore. Oh, oh actually, they do. Yeah. And I know cause it might be an inverse relationship with audiobooks, too, because I remember when the pandemic started, audiobook sales exploded. Because now more people were able to work remote at home and listen to them while they're doing it. And then now people are allowed to collect books and also sit at home and read them at night. And I'm like, this might be just good for the industry because ebooks, I don't think they've suffered at all. I think just print has just been recovering. And now more people are comfortable reading in whatever format they feel best in. But now there's like more work-life balance because of the pandemic in a way that people have adjusted that you're allowed to do remote working. You're allowed to commute or travel less or whatever you want. Um, one example I know is my friend, he got into cybersecurity recently after leaving business. And he loves it because of how much it lets him consume fiction now. As long as he's logged in on his computer, wherever he's at, whether he's working or he has his three days off because he does one of those four, 10-hour shift and three days off. He's always listening to audiobooks now, but he reads physical books too. He doesn't do ebooks as much, but he'll have a book there in between, like, because it's you're on call or whatever. So he's like, if I've got a slow hour, I'll just pull out a book and read because it helps him disconnect from the actual laptop. But he's in a safe private place. He doesn't feel awkward reading at an office or a cubicle or something. Well, and I think that there is there's something to be said because the first kind of five years of my career, I noticed a lot, and I, I talked about this a little bit online. Was that 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 kind of race to the bottom in certain in terms of ebook pricing? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so you'd get like just these influxes of ninety nine cent ebooks, um, and obviously uh, Amazon's uh, kind of. Uh, their pricing model kind of fought against that because they wanted people to go at least three dollars. Um, but I, I, I think that maybe we've had a little bit more of a rebound, and um, or, or maybe I'm spouting bullshit here, but I feel like we've had a little bit of a rebound in terms of the consumer being a little bit more aware of maybe a dollar ebook isn't a great thing for me because there's a lot of trash to sort through. Right. Um, because you have a lot of people that try to take advantage of that by mass producing, yes. you know, these these kind of popcorn fiction, which can be very fun. Right to market. Right, yeah. And, and so I, I think that we've had a little bit of the consumer kind of going, yeah. you know what, maybe paying, you know, like, maybe paying $12 for a ebook and getting the audiobook as well. And maybe even getting myself the hardcover. If I've spent $40 on this book, it's actually going to entertain me right. for quite a long time. And maybe I don't mind that as much as I used to. Right. Um, I, I mean, I kind of hope that people get that idea. I, like I, I like, I like seeing people, you know, both for my bottom line, but also as someone who's creative, uh, I like seeing people, appreciate the value in a book rather than just saying no no i'll never pay more than a dollar for a book right and that's yeah and that's what's gotten hard with amazon because i've seen the benefit not just as like an indie for myself but for other people but like like there's that weird balance because i know that i get i've gotten um some of my stuff's in kindle unlimited and i know i get stuff from older actual readers who are on disability and they have a fixed income yeah and they're like oh thank god your series is in kindle limited because i couldn't afford to buy every book but i like reading and supporting them. so they pay the ten dollars a month to read all those books and, but unfortunately like you said that's a lot of where i guess the dross or people who pump out a lot of books a lot of time will also use ku for that they will create such a large backlist that regardless of quality it's an incentive in and of itself and you will see a lot of readers who have like a very limited income for them it's better to just pay the ten dollars and only read on amazon but because of the exclusivity it does suck. They're losing out on a lot of books that would be found on Apple or wider or then in traditional books, too, because I don't think traditional books ever get entered into KU unless you're like J.K. Rowling or some, someone massive. And then they get a special deal where like their book is both wide, but at the same time still available on Kindle Unlimited or Prime. Yeah. 
Well, and it's a it's a weird place to be in as an author because you, on the one hand, you don't want people who are disadvantaged, on limited incomes, and things. You don't want them to be kind of cut out to access your books. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, you have to make a living. Yeah. Um. And and I mean, I guess that's where I I'm really a big fan of libraries. Yeah, when people can yeah. access them. Yes. Um. Because. You know, because the library paid me for that book, they paid a, a licensing you know fee for an ebook, or or they bought the hardcover. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, I forgot they do do ebooks. That's a great point. That's a yeah. So so there's 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 a balance you want to do of I want to be affordable, but I also want to be able to pay my mortgage. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, and man, I don't want to go get a second job, like a real job again. Yeah. I I have no skills. I make stuff up. Yeah. Oh, that's another good point. And that's kind of where I'm at. Cause like I actually debated like, Oh, the end of the world's changing. Like, should I maybe consider going to pick up a real job again? I literally debated retraining myself, but it's like, I've done this so long. I don't have any normal people skills anymore. Like I'm good at this. Can I just make this work? Yeah. And, and then you see the stuff with AI happening. And I'm like, uh, today, uh, an artist posted, I think Microsoft is investing 10 billion into AI to replace certain kinds of coding and other jobs. And I'm like, are there going to be normal people jobs left if I go back yeah. at this rate? Should I just maybe, maybe, I, maybe being an artist is safer. Well, there, but is it though? Like, you know, there's the giant, I don't there's know. the giant debates over the, um, the AI art right now. And I'm panicking. Oh God. And there's definitely, there's definitely attempts to write books with AI. Um, with, a little more complex, I think, than the art. Yes. Um, yeah. But it, but it's still like one of those dangers of like you're kind of like thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to have a job in ten years? Um, I hope AI is dumb. Like it has a limit. I don't know if you saw this. It was trending yesterday only, and it was about a military AI they were training. And someone's report of it was that the AI didn't have like human common sense. So it was really smart at figuring out ways other people could come at it. Two Marines snuck up in it on a cardboard box. And it just didn't have the idea to grok. Why is a cardboard box moving towards me? Like, he didn't think, think that was a threat. And they, they, the whole yeah. entire thread was just flooded with Metal Gear Solid memes of like, well, I guess like, it did work. He was a genius all along. You can sneak up on things in a cardboard <laughs> box. So, like, I'm hoping smart AIs have a limit and they can't get good. AI definitely feels inevitable in terms of it kind of becoming... I mean, it's already a part of our lives in ways that we don't really understand the normal person. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, you know, like, uh, talking with buddies of mine, um, they talk about how... For them, they aren't trained to write, to communicate, and things like that. They're like they're talking about how throwing in uh, the the bullet points of an email into an AI lets them write a proper business like email in like you know, thirty seconds, rather than agonizing over something they're not used to doing right. for two hours. And that that kind of thing that's actually really quite cool. Oh yeah, it goes back to the balance you're talking about, like because there's an accessibility thing too. AI is going to be great with right. Like we, we, I think you might have seen the stuff about the AI um, voice narrators. And that's probably going to help a lot of people who might be visually impaired uh, be able to get easier access into like audiobooks. But the fear is that our company is going to use it to replace actual voice acting work. Right. Well, and it's always going to end up coming back around to kind of the quality and what you get out of it. Um, because I think most people that there's definitely going to be a, a tier of person who says, yeah, I don't care if my audiobook sounds like a, 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 a robot that doesn't bother me in the slightest. Um, but I think most people are going to, they're going to not get on board that train until they can't tell the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and who knows when that will be, maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it'll be five years. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, like as a lay person talking about all this stuff, it yeah, yeah. feels so weird. Cause there's probably advancements in the last month that I don't know about, you know, like, Oh yeah. And it gets folded into everywhere. So like as a gamer, um, the new NVIDIA graphics cards have built in AI, but they're like useful AI. One of them that it has is um, sound background monitoring. So if you're a streamer and you use your new NVIDIA graphics cards, it can get rid of like clapping and background noise for you. You don't need third party filters. You don't need like the craziest mic and noise gates. Your your graphics card will do it. And now they also have um, like a streamer. What is it? The green screen. It's built into your graphics card now. Some of them on the higher end ones. Like, And the AI will monitor that for you. 
So it's like it's making some kinds of jobs better. But again, like you said, like it's it's infiltrating so many different areas of life. Like God knows where else it is. Right. Well, and there's parts of the medical industry that are already being revolutionized in terms of, okay, we're going to feed this stuff into AIs. And and there's certain things that AIs just do so much better than a doctor, no matter how well trained. Right. Because the doctor is human and can make mistakes. Right. Right. And I don't know. There's there's lots that you can go with in terms of where this is going to look in 10 years and i don't know i certainly have no idea me either i just hope james cameron's wrong and it doesn't go to you know skynet and terminator <laughs> right right as long as it doesn't kill me uh or enslave me i'm 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 pretty cool with ai i mean i would really like it to not steal my job um yes yeah yeah, yeah that at least until i'm about 60 then i'm probably okay with that uh <laughs> give give me another 25 years uh and then whatever i i won't care yeah you know you can let let, let the next generation of writers deal with that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's a weird place. Um, oh, that's good. But okay, so we, uh, we've taken quite a lot of your time, but I like to end every single episode of this podcast with one question, which is, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Oh, so this was just yesterday. I went with my friend and we went to a ramen bar, but I didn't actually have the ramen. I had this brilliant, like, uh, seared, maple glazed pork chasu rice bowl oh. and it was like all the ingredients you would have in the ramen just monitor the ramen and noodles with like instead fried rice um the, the same egg and like tonkatsu flavoring i guess but like dry yeah like whatever the marinade they would do so again not no liquid and it was just so decadent and the pork was chewy and crispy and glazed and i never thought i'd see maple used in japanese cuisine but it, it was like candied pork belly it was just so good that sounds incredible yeah it was delicious i i instantly had a food coma though i don't know if it was the amount of fat or oil in it but it was it was worth it <laughs> i um i love that i love when you do actually get the, like the um the lighter sweetness in yeah. asian cooking because like american asian a lot of times especially with like kind of uh mom and pop chinese places it's like very sugary very sweet um but i like the lighter uh the lighter sweetness like i like um i have this uh chinese uh chinese pork recipe it's like a chinese glazed pork recipe that takes forever um but it's basically how like a good chinese place would make the pork they put into your fried rice um and it takes forever so i don't make it very often but it is stupidly good oh i believe it Uh, i love that kind of thing same and it had a really nice heat that didn't expect because it didn't you wouldn't think it's a spice dish but it just complemented like the sweetness so well because it didn't use like you could tell it wasn't just brown sugar or anything. The only sweetness came from the actual maple. So it was a little understated. And then there was this like really nice spice kick with it. So sweet and spicy, but not the extremes that you would get. Like you said, like an American Chinese restaurant would do it. Yeah, yeah. It was just super subtle. Oh, I love that kind of thing. I got a sandwich the other day that was a, um, that was a, uh, basically like a, a Philly style, but like with a lot of jalapenos in it. Ooh. Um, they called it a spicy Frenchie, I think is what they called it. Um, and it was, uh, it was very good, but like, I know that I'm a white person with a white person palate, but also like as I was eating it, I was like, man, if they put half the amount of jalapenos in this, this would be literally a perfect sandwich. Um, I believe it. But I'm sure that someone else eating it would go, let's double the jalapenos. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, you never know. Uh, I uh, something I something I'm always kind of fascinated. I would love to get a, a, a chef onto this podcast someday. Because something I'm always fascinated in is the way that someone designing a dish has to try to 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 make it a dish they love, but also that lots of other people will love. Accessibility. Yeah. So like I, I forgot you're a huge foodie because like I actually follow your food posts and I forget because I used to work. That was the blue collar job I did. I used to work in the food industry. Um, I somehow we didn't get you to get David. Uh, is it David Chang yeah. on? I think you probably know who he is, right? If you follow food stuff, he. Uh, started Momofuku Food Bar, which is one of the first ramen bars in America. He started it in D.C. ages ago, and now he's like this massive multimedia chef who's got TV deals, uh, PBS, like he did Mind of a Chef. He's got like a few shows on Netflix, which are all cooking and based. It's a brilliant guy. Yeah, if you can get him on. But he goes into the theory of that, like how he's built a taste memory, the way writers build like a writing memory of like, oh, scenes and stuff. Yeah. And then how he goes, how do I tone this down for the accessibility of what crowd I'm marketing for? Like how to present an Asian dish in like a Western layout does so much and the colors and how do you make use French influence of presentation to make an Asian dick look really tasty. That might honestly be this bowl of giant, like non-discriminate colored soup. Yeah. Usually. Oh, that's really cool. I do love that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't watch as many cooking shows as I used to. I should get back to that. 
I so people people get worked up and get really hit hard by c- celebrity deaths. Doesn't ever bother me. It's like, oh, this is a person I've never met. I don't care. Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain genuinely punched me in the stomach. Like I had just read Kitchen Confidential. Oh, um, like my, maybe six months before he he died, and uh, and I had been watching through all of his shows, and I honestly I stopped watching. I just I couldn't do it. It, it, it like it was like he 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 had such a great presentation as someone who was both a very flawed human being, but also really really tried to understand food and the people that ate it. Yeah, um, that was the huge thing. The people that ate it, the way he would go to like just some random food stall in like Cambodia and just sit there with people yeah. eating it and just meet anybody and bond over food. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved that kind of stuff. It, it just so good. Um, so yeah, I, I guess after he died, I kind of just stopped watching food shows. It just I don't know. It took the wind out of my sails. I, see, I'm the opposite. I think I ran to them for comfort because I didn't realize until my editors were commenting. But the Tales of Tremaine series, every book. I bleed in so much South Asian and Middle Eastern cuisine. And I make a point of talking about it. Like, oh, it's sweetened with these dates. And um, I go into the history of food, like a book two, which isn't out yet. I can't remember the exact name, but um, the Bedouin and a lot of people who would live in the desert would actually take certain fruits and preserve them. And like, you would create like a leather out of it, like apricot leather. And it's really like a really old school fruit roll up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just dehydrated, but it's a way to preserve it. It's really thin and pressed out. And it's just like this almost jellied leather. Yeah. And I would put all that in there. And my editors are like, just commenting really hungry right now, really hungry. Like, why do you go so so much about food? And it's like, Oh, cause I have like strong memories and association with food. Yeah. And I'm a foodie. And I used to work in the food industry as like another blue collar job. And they're like, Oh, okay, well stop it because you're making us hungry. But they never make me cut it. They just complain. <laughs> uh, that's that's forgivable. <laughs> that was fantasy author R.R. Verdi. You can find Ronnie's social media and website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, and Bradley Thornhill for their backing on Patreon. <laughs>